Hello and welcome to the Giddy Carousel of Pop, a podcast all about the swingerillion pop mag smash hits. I'm Simon Galloway, and also in your lug holes, it's Mr. Gavin Hogg. Hello, Gavin. Hello, sir. You're right, lad. Yeah, I am. Thank you. There you are, right. My lug holes. Yeah. Now, uh, let me tell you, life on the carousel can sometimes become a little bit hectic, and you just need a little break from all the commotion. Yes, there's the coffee kiosk, and there are any number of other attractions that we could partake in, but sometimes all you want is a little bit of peace and quiet and a satsuma. And it's at times like these when you'll find us in the carousel reading room. Shh! Which is where we happen to be right now. For news has reached the carousel of a weighty tome, compiling the finest work of one of the hits' legendary writers. We are, of course, talking about Mr. Tom Hibbert. The tome in question is entitled Few A Readers. And what do you know? We have the book's co-editor, Jasper Morrison-Bowie, and former Smash It staffer, Caroline Grimshaw, here in the reading room, to tell us all about it. Welcome to both of you. Hi, nice to be here. Hello, hi. Uh, so there's rarely an episode of the podcast goes by when Tom isn't mentioned in one way or another. We've had several of his editors and colleagues on over the years, but obviously he's no longer with us to tell his own story. So this book fills that gap. Jasper, can you tell us where this idea came from to, to pull this book together? Well, I have to give credit for that, actually, to Pete Selby of 9-8 Books, who are putting this book out. He came to us, us being Roxback Pages, the online archive of music journalism, and he said, let's do a book together. And we said, that sounds great. And he said, I think Tom Hibbert deserves a book of his writing. So he kind of gave us that, that germ of an idea, and we ran with it and ran with it and ran with it, and here we are. And when he first suggested that idea, what were your initial thoughts? What did Tom Hibbert mean to you at that point? To me, I mean, I you may have noticed my uh, age demographic does not align me with a, a sort of someone who might have been able to read smash hits growing up. So I hadn't really, I'd read, I mean, a few of his pieces. I've been working at RBP now for over six years. So I'd read stuff as it had been kind of going into the archive and and he'd been recommended by colleagues sort of say, yeah, he's one of the funniest writers ever. And so I'd read some of his things, but it was kind of, I was coming to him pretty fresh when I started working on the book with with Barney Hoskins, who founded Rockstack Pages. And Caroline, for you, when, when you heard there was going to be a, a book about Tom, what were your initial thoughts? Was it something you thought you'd been waiting for for a long time? Because I, I certainly had. I was always kind of hoping that someone would compile his work. Well, I think it's incredible. Yeah, I mean, I think when I heard that it was happening, I was just really pleased because whilst I think your podcast mentions him a lot, a lot of people may not mention him. A lot of people haven't heard of him. Um, they won't remember the kind of person he was. And maybe they won't even remember that, that the kind of people like Tom existed at that time and change the way that words hit the page and change the way that we all felt about our own personal ambition. I mean, I think what Tom did for all of us is he allowed us to be whatever we wanted to be. He walked in the office. and I think if you read uh, all the stories that come out of it, people's own words, everyone was affected by Tom and everybody's life was affected by Tom. He gave you permission to be the future you. And I think that's what is brilliant about the book, actually. A, a few people have said to me, but who's heard of him? Why make a book? Well, I think at the end of the day, everybody has to read this book because it will show you what it was like in the 70s and 80s. It will show you why journalism became 
as it did. And I think it also shows you what we've lost, not to be maudlin and depressive, but it does show you the kind of uh, thinking and journalism that it's quite hard to find now. So when I heard it was, um, yeah, when I heard they were doing the book, I was just really pleased, pleased that characters like him are remembered and are reintroduced back into the world. Yeah, Jasper, I mean, the, the, the format of the book, can you talk us through that and how, how you've structured it? So we wanted the book to be as much about Tom as by him. That's the line that we kind of sort of thought of to, to describe it. And so we, A, invited a whole bunch of wonderful writers to contribute to it. So those reflections on people that knew him and people that worked with him, reflections on him and his work are dotted throughout the book. And the book itself follows a kind of loosely chronological structure whereby we start with, they're not his first pieces as such, but they're pieces about his early pop life, as it were, going to Bath Festival and so on. And then we go through and and when he starts writing, he starts writing for New Music News. That's kind of his first music writing gig. And then we go into the smash hits years and then the, the who the hell and and kind of beyond that into when he became the Sunday Times night and day magazine columnist and the Observer's Pendennis character later on. So it's a kind of chronological-ish overview of his writing. I, th- I think what also um, comes across when you actually pick it up is how much of Tom's own voice is in it. There's some little paragraphs that appear throughout where you just get him chatting away um, about how he felt at the time. Um, So you actually do get a sense that it's his own voice that's coming through, almost as if he's just been interviewed about it. Like he's still here going, well, this is what I think. And, you know, this wasn't very good. And this is what I thought of this person. And and that's just dotted in as well in in a slightly different format. You know, you've got that italic text, which just introduces it. And I think also that bit at the front where you've got the, um, the interview Again, where he's he's talking away about his views and how he writes is just fascinating because it's like you've interviewed him and you've also interviewed the people that sat next to him. So it doesn't feel like an obituary and it doesn't feel like a retrospective. It feels like a kind of a live uh, version of events, which I think is very powerful. Yeah, it does. It, feel, it feels very, very rounded, doesn't it? And, um, and you, you kind of get to, you get to know Tom as you read it and you get to understand why why all these people i mean you know the the, the roll call of people that have contributed to the book uh, and obviously smash it dominates with mark helen um william shaw yourself caroline um sylvia patterson the photographer paul Ryder, tom doyle and the cartoonist kipper williams uh, all you know commenting on on the smash it's era but you you will start to understand how he himself ran through smash hits like a like a stick of like letters in a stick of rock and how that in, infected and, and infused everybody around him how you still find that in popular culture writing now it's kind of like we're all you know we're all living in tom hibbert's world now <laughs> yeah that was one of the things that really came through strongly was just how influential he actually was in a you know on the writers that that followed him, Sylvia Patterson and, and the whole lexicon that he and Mark Ellen and others created, but also just in a kind of subtle way that his ironic view of the world, his kind of humour, his everything, everything, the way that he looked at things has kind of just filtered through into all kinds of different sort of aspects of life, which is amazing. 
Yeah, I mean, at, at, even back in the day, you know, the, the, the smash isms would find their way through to my, uh, you know, English homework and essays and things <laughs> when I was at school. I'd pity the poor teachers across the country who experienced that, you know, from <laughs> from a, a range of their students. It must have drove them mad. I think there was a whole generation that were totally infected um, by those hibbertisms, and I think you know, obviously, Smash It's was a, a successful magazine before Tom joined, but. I really think his his use of humour and uh, the lingo and the, the language that he used really gave Smashits that sort of identifiable. You know, there were there were identifiable factors, weren't they, in Smashits? And I, th- I think it wouldn't have been the massive success that it became without Tom. I don't know what other people's thoughts are about that. Well, I think what's interesting for me just reading through it is people like Chris Heath, who was at the time massive and became more massive and got massively massiver. <laughs> and uh, just reading his piece, um, I, I, I actually made a note of it. He actually recalled the phrase that won approval. And he actually made a note of the date. It was Valentine's Day, 1985. The first phrase that uh, uh, Tom Hibbert approved that Chris Heath had said, um, the pale fountains refusing to walk on a frozen canal. And, I, you know, that you put that as a heading. But I picked that out because... It's such a Tom Hibbert phrase. You know, the pale fountain, the water of the fountain, the paleness of them, the canals frozen, the refusal of walking. What does it mean? It's so complex. It's so poetic. It's so brilliant. And Tom loved it and hence loved Chris. And Chris felt that, felt that approval, which then gave him ambition to carry on being who he was and then kept it and remembered the date of it in his mind in 2023 and put it on a page i mean i think that shows how strong uh the connection was that people felt and there's so many stories of people sort of you know coming into the into the office and sitting next to him sort of shaking hoping to sort of uh you know meet with his approval and and say the right thing and do the right thing and yet i don't think tom was ever judgmental i think he just wanted the world to be brilliant he really wanted to be as the world to be as brilliant as he could see it in his own mind so he kept pushing everybody to be as brilliant and fascinating and fabulous as he thought we could all be. And for a time, I think we all became that. And maybe we still are now and then, but uh, that I think that's what he did. It was that kind of, I don't know, a, a gentle beauty and an excitement he had for the world, which we were lucky to be surrounded by at the time. Yeah, Do you, do you remember, Caroline, your first encounter with Tom? Well, I, th- I think I wrote about it. Um, I believe I was on the amazing zigzag at the time, which didn't have many readers, um, but it was good fun, actually. It had really good characters working for it. Uh, Mick Mercer from Melody Maker. Um, William was a deputy editor, so he took me into the Smash Hits office, and it was just unbelievable. I mean, I guess it was about 86, maybe. Uh, uh, every, I mean, Sylvia was sobbing on the floor under a desk. I don't know what had happened. There was stuff, there was at least three or four record players playing at the same time. People were throwing records across the room at each other. And he was in the room then. But when you think of Tom, and this also comes out in terms of what he wore, he was always sort of hunched and crouched in a corner and not saying very much. But you kind of felt that he was an important person. But I think it was it was the brand leather jacket. I mean, everybody needs to read Elise's piece, which is heartbreaking. And that's his wife, by the way, or to, to the people out there listening. Um, heartbreaking, but so 
I mean, Elise is fantastic. She was a fantastic person to be around. She's so specific and almost harsh, the things she said. I'd forgotten he only ate fish paste. And he did. <laughs> You'd invite him to dinner and he'd want fish paste. And you think, hang on, aren't we having a dinner party? Isn't that the 1980s or the early 90s? And his clothes were just extraordinary and strange. And he was just extraordinary to look at and had this presence, I think, this incredible presence. You kind of just wanted to be near him. So the piece I wrote was a true story, obviously, but it was, at the time, EMAP was massive. I mean, it was the biggest thing ever. Smash Hits had gone through the roof, a million copies of Fortnite. It was huge. And they'd had these parties and everybody would be jumping up and down and congratulating each other. And then you'd find yourself in a dark corridor surrounded by, you know, cigarette ash. And Tom would just be sitting there in the dark and you'd sit next to him. You'd have this private moment that you can remember much more than you know, all the back slapping and the acclaim because I think he genuinely felt like an outsider from all of it. And reading the book, I can't work out if he wanted to be on the inside or not. So I think it'd be interesting for everyone to buy the book and then work out for themselves, did he want to be the ins- on the inside or was he happy being on the outside? Maybe it doesn't matter. Yeah, so you've got that um, contradiction there. Well, it's, it comes as no surprise, I guess, to, to anyone that... Tom's been mentioned many a time on the podcast. So we've dug out a couple of clips from previous episodes uh, where Tom has come up in the discussion. And here's what Barry McElhenney remembers about Tom Hibbert. Tom had been brought into the magazine, I think, with Mark Ellen. He was a close friend of Mark's. He was older, or he seemed older. I mean, I, I think he was older, but he certainly seemed older. I've never actually managed or worked with anyone quite like him. You know, and I mean that in a kind of good and bad way, but but the, but overwhelmingly good. You didn't really manage him, is the honest answer to that. You sort of let him be because he kept peculiar hours. I mean, my my abiding memory is of him sitting, chain smoking, bashing away on the old typewriter. He lived in his own world, you know, and very much that world that comes into Smash Hits with the strange expressions and phrases. And I think everyone who was on it would have said he was the the kind of guiding spirit of Smash Hits for, for that entire period, really. And he was incredibly kind of kind to me because he would have had no ambition to be editor, you know, uh, but he was technically the most senior person. He'd been on it the longest and he was the oldest. And I mean, I'm sure that he more than anyone would have thought, who is this guy, you know, when I arrived? But actually, we did strike up something of a bond, and um, maybe because I just, I suppose, let him be. I mean, I think the worst thing to do with Tom would have been to have said, OK, you know, we start at 9.30, and uh, you've got one hour for lunch, and, you know, <laughs> Tom would drift off to a, a nearby hostelry quite often, you know. And I just took the attitude of, the stuff he's producing is sensationally good. I don't really care how he does that. We just let give him his head, and it was fantastic. And yeah. of course, he took all of that onto cue. We missed him on Smash Hits, obviously, but a lot of people, you know, by this time, a lot of people who'd been in Smash Hits, Mark, Tom, were moving across to cue, uh, which then went through the purple patch of its own in the mm. probably the late 80s, early 90s. 
So that's Barry McElhenney and just some of his memories and thoughts of working with Tom Hibbert. And the issue that we covered with Barry was the one, well, it's got Wayne Hussey on the cover, but it's also the one that has the interview uh, that Tom Hibbert did with Margaret Thatcher in there, which is also in the book. That Margaret Thatcher interview I read last night and I haven't read it for years and unbelievable. But one thing that came out really clearly to me from it was she was banging on and on about the importance of friendship. Well, she wasn't actually, she said it once, the importance of friendship. And when I read that, I thought, that's interesting, because she probably didn't have any friends at the end. Um, But this book is actually about friendship, I think. The book really is his friends and the importance of people around him and people that wanted to be his friend and people that worked with him. And it's a real, I think it's like a love letter, really, to a time that's, gone a time that's passed into a person that affected us all and hopefully he'll make lots of new friends who'll pick up this book and think god that's interesting I mean I showed the picture today of me and him um at my lovely dinner party uh, I was out today and um, I was showing everybody and they went oh my goodness me what an amazing face what an amazing person <laughs> yeah that's Tom you need to buy the book <laughs> yeah no that's 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 I mean Jasper do you feel like you've got to know Tom through putting this book together yeah I really I really I mean on the one hand I really do on the other hand I really wish that I'd got to meet him the character that he was just springs forth from everybody's descriptions of him so I would yeah absolutely have loved to have to have just got to have a chat with him and and kind of witnessed his approach to the world firsthand and at the same time, I do feel like through this, I've got, I've had the chance to just, you know, meet him almost. You know, he's, he's like, his, his, his attitude is so sharp and so to the point that you can't help but feel like you, you kind of have an idea of how he might respond to certain things or not, and you get into this, you know, the whole language use. And I think one of the things people maybe sometimes slightly not get wrong, but misapprehend is just that like his lexicon was very very funny but it wasn't just loads of silly words it was a really cutting kind of sense of irony and a raised eyebrow arched eyebrow just all kind of underpinning those silly words that made them coherent made them make sense again which I think is really important not to forget. No I I totally agree with that I mean I think anybody that's interested in writing anybody that's interested in the positioning of words and how they can be playful, experimental, should get the book just to read it because you can see his his writing did change as he went through different briefs and, and different periods of time. But you can see the joy he has with actually putting the words on the page. And I think that's fascinating to read, even if you've never heard of him or even if you've never heard of Q, for goodness sake, or smash it. Just get that opportunity to hear his voice again and his, like you say, his viewpoint. So, I mean, I came in, obviously, to smash it's after he'd gone, and it was was extremely tough time because all the things that everybody loved about smash it's, everybody suddenly hated. Kylie out the window, Jason out the window, pop music out the window, and we ended up with the Damsky and his dog that sold five copies and all got blamed by the marketing department because, you know, at the end of the day, Acid House happened and it was a completely different set of ideas. But being in the office, there was still that legacy that Tom had left and that need to be upbeat and that need to be quirky, which some writers were good at, some people struggled with. You know, actually, maybe Tom, if he'd stuck around, would have thrown it all in the bin and created something completely different for the Acid House era. 
it would have been quite funny to watch him do that, to be honest with you, because reflecting on that time was very different from reflecting on Kylie and, and Jason and all of that. But certainly the way he wrote inspired other people to write like him. I think one of the key things about the way that he wrote was also he never left the reader behind. He was always kind of, even even if he was making fun of someone, even if he was being kind of a bit dismissive or, or, or just just having fun with somebody, you know, at somebody's expense, as smash hits often kind of did, you know, all the nicknames, all of the, the variety of, of inventive ways to <laughs> basically have fun. He was always really on your side as the reader. You know, you can really feel that he doesn't want to... He's never never looking down on you. He's never making you feel stupid or out of the loop or silly or uninformed or anything like that. He really, really wants you to just come with him and kind of just have a good time. Well, that that was it, the, the little club. And he, I think he made this feel like we're like, saying that we, if you worked there, if you knew him, you felt like you were in his private club. But I think the readers felt that. Well, here's another of Tom's colleagues from the Smash It's days, the brilliant Sylvia Patterson, and uh, a little snippet that we borrowed from the Word in Your Ear podcast. Well, Hibs was basically my hero, to be honest. Um, I was, I suppose, 15. I'm in a small, average town in Scotland. The Hits was my life. And I understood that this entity called Black Type was actually a real human being and, uh, and, and, and he was called Tom Hibbert and that was even before he even got to his interviews and all that kind of thing. Basically, that was my entry point into Smash It's was the, the bits and Black Type, but Black Type more than anything. Suddenly, the mist's clear and I'm, st- and, and I'm 20 and he's sitting next to me. I'm the, the new staff writer and he's the deputy editor, and um, suddenly I'm commissioning him to write new stories and, uh, and all this kind of... It's, it's just completely bonkers how life is, is it, is it not? Well, anyway, there's Hibbs. I never really knew much about him, to be honest. I didn't know how old he was. I didn't know where he came from. I heard that once he, he tested acid for a living in the 70s, I knew nothing about him. I knew... Mark, you know, you lived with... I knew nothing about him. All I knew was that this perpetually amused man with this extraordinary personality, P.G. Woodhouse-esque, I, I suppose, for a general kind of vibe, snout permanently in his mouth, tat-tat-tat-tatting with two fingers on this typewriter and never really actually really interacting in any other way, to be honest, just literally having an absolutely incredibly good laugh at his own jokes all day long. <laughs> and... I was thinking, should I maybe read out the Upper Bubblington Village fate to to give you an idea? This is the kind of thing that Hibbs was just... He never even told... This was a grand old smash hits tradition that Silver's going to dig out here. We used to write the next issue trailers. He didn't even tell you what he was doing. Yeah, we would just invent groups that uh, didn't exist. He, 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 to himself, he'd be like, Hibbs, what are you doing? Oh, I'm just making stuff up, (laughs) he would say. Happenings was the, um, the gig guide, that's all it was. That's all we could do. That was the huge gig guide. Who was on that particular uh, um, Fortnite? Amazulu, The Mission, Chris Rea, mm, Castle Donnington, 1986, and then something called the Upper Bubblington Village Fate. <laughs> August 10th, tickets 20p from Ronnie and Madge, Cucumber and Spongebag, Public House, The Green Lower Bubblington, Main Tent. 
Reg, Reg Snipton and his banjo gals, Twizzle, the complete bastards, the yodeling gondoliers, Pepe and Lord Alfred, Firecracker, Firecracker Sweet, Doom, Reg, Reg Snipton and his banjo boys, Mad Goths, Herman in a Bucket, the Rita Gum Experience, Virgin Prunes Village Hall, oh sorry, Virgin Prunes Village Hall, no, Virgin Prunes, next is the Village Hall. Papier mache for, for infants, a talk with slides by Reverend Doris Twobody, <laughs> Fla- fl- flower, flower arranging, and the feminist experience, group activity orchestrated by De Margot Riviera, Skegness observed, exhibition by local artist Hector and Eunice Babbage, my interesting collection of bits I have cut out of the local newspaper, Viz the Bubblington Bugle, over the years, talk by Reg, Reg Snipton, Scotland the Brave, Caber tossing and sword dancing with your host, Jock E. Crana. He was production. Very Scottish. Uh, stalls, tombola, guess the cake, raffle, sherry glasses and trifle, strangle the monkey, throw, throw a coconut at Reg, Reg Snipton, get completely ripped off for some useless homemade flower pots by Dam, Dam Margot, Riviera, etc., etc. Note, this event has now been cancelled owing to lack of public interest. <laughs> <laughs> Brackets. No, it hasn't. You just made the whole thing up to fill in some space because there are hardly any groups doing gigs at this time of year. Ed, bah, rumbled, happenings. <laughs> and that Tell was me <laughs> uh, We'll have to see if we can get Reg, Reg Snipton on the podcast uh, one of these days. Um, our thanks to David Hepworth and Mark Ellen for letting us use that little clip. If you want to listen to the uh, full Word in Your Ear episode from which that was taken... It was number 225, which came out in uh, 2014, to be precise. Now, turning our attention back to the book, Jasper, can you tell us how you went about selecting the, the pieces that you've used in the book? I mean, obviously, you must have had you know, loads to, to, to go out and choose from and uh, arguments and discussions and things. But th- did it kind of, because uh, you said it's roughly chronological and it, it does tell a story, but did it all just kind of fall into place and you found the right things to sit in the right place? How, how, how did you go about actually, you know, selecting the pieces to use, you know, Tom's own pieces to use in the book? Yeah, I mean, it, well, I can't say that it just sort of all fell into place because it, it didn't. <laughs> <laughs> but we had so much as you've just alluded to, so much to choose from. He wrote so many great, so many funny pieces, and it was quite a challenge to get the balance, hopefully, hopefully right, of, of you know, between the smash hits time, the time before that of New Music News, which involved, you know, tracking down old issues of New Music News that we didn't even have to try and find, you know. I really, my one sort of disappointment is that there's this great story of before he'd even written any music journalism, he was on... He was he was writing for some DIY magazine, and he apparently wrote. And it, I mean, Tom was like, by all accounts, the least practical man <laughs> that ever graced this earth. And he wrote a guide on how to wire your own home, which apocryphally led to someone, some poor reader's uh, house um, burning down, which one shouldn't laugh at, but. It is a bit silly. So I couldn't. Find, I was really hoping to find the Hibbert guide on how to wire your own home, and I and I failed to find that. That's the one thing that I would have really loved to include. But I think pretty much everything else that we really wanted to get in here, we did. And it was it was just a question of trying to balance 
all those different strands. You know, the the the, the funny sides, his his reviews. We've got bits and bobs of you know Smash Hit singles reviews. We've got uh, excerpts from the rock dictionary that he compiled. The rock. Oh, uh, that, the, that, the, that. <laughs> That had me howling. <laughs> That's pro- probably my, my favourite. Uh, yeah, <laughs> Slangsville, assorted definitions from rock speak, the dictionary of rock terms. Uh, I'll just read out a couple of those. Um, it's all you know uh, definitions of, of words. So experimental, of music that abandons conventional forms and instrumentation, usually with disastrous results. Of music that is incomprehensible and serves no apparent purpose. And that's f- followed by <laughs> filler, a substandard song or track included on an LP, uh, LP record to fill up a side that is short on material. Some LP records are comprised entirely of fillers. <laughs> and I, I was just, oh, I, I, I had to put the book down and just have a moment <laughs> to, to, to recover from reading that. I can remember very well when we compiled that that excerpted list of definitions we were absolutely creasing it was it, we were just it was it and that is the one of the beautiful things about working on this was actually that even now i'll read bits and i'll just uncontrollably start laughing he it's just so fun i don't know how you can get across and I, the temptation is as you just did to like read out just just screeds of it because he had such a great turn of phrase and such a wit of it so you know i i think it as far as putting it together yeah we it it kind of did and it didn't just fall into place because you know find you know finding his later stuff was a bit tricky and then obviously we didn't we wanted to include enough of the things that people would remember the the who the hells and the smash hit stuff while also giving people you know lots of fresh stuff that i think probably lots of people would just not have seen his stuff i mean you know unless you were buying you know the mail on sunday you would never have got to read his piece about reality bites the internet you know uh, or 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 abba with a with a rock and roll you know it's like him having to write about all these like really quite mainstream pop phenomena that that I in a, in a way for for you know he just didn't want to he didn't want to do that you know he 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 uh, one one week i think he was supposed to be um reviewing something and he decided none of it was any good and so he reviewed a, a compilation put out by Valeda, the the household cleaning products company to accompany a mop that they were selling and it was a a cassette compilation called Bop While You Mop and he reviewed that instead of reviewing any of the new releases of the week because he didn't think any of them were any cop so it was uh, <laughs> you know all that sort of thing it's just was it was just really exciting to kind of come upon this great cache of like not obviously undiscovered Hibbert but but stuff that was not as widely known Deep cuts. Deep cuts. Yeah. Hibbert deep cuts. <laughs> yeah, I was really surprised to learn that um, Juggins was a person I thought it was just like some sort of exclamation or something like that Juggins is one of my favourite definitions because he had a childhood friend who was called Juggins who he was also in various bands with and towards the end of his life who he, who he still hung out with, you know, in, in, when he when he moved back to... I think he was living in Reading. Um, and he was still hanging out with Juggins. And in the definitions, he defines Juggins. Um, and he defines Juggins as... Uh, a slow-witted, subservient person, a simpleton who does as he is told... <laughs> which I just think to put that in a book that you've been commissioned to write to just put into to kind of get your best mate by defining his nickname as like an idiot is just it's very funny it's very 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 funny one of the things I really love about uh, Tom's writing and and you know through reading his stuff through smash it's was that he always championed that kind of wild-eyed outsider and Caroline you talked before about him being an outsider 
And I, I mean, the whole book is great. I particularly love chapter five, which is uh, the section called Mancap Grandees, where there's interviews that he does with Arthur Lee of Love, um, Rocky Erickson of 13th Floor Renovators, and uh, Viv Stansel. Jasper, I'm, I'm interested, well, both of you really, where do you think this passion of Tom's for the sort of eccentric underdog came from? Is that something that went all through his life, do you think? I think it really did. I mean, in uh, in one of the first pieces in the book, if not the first possibly, he's reminiscing about his own life as a schoolboy and he was obsessed with the birds and he really wanted a pair of sunglasses like, like Roger McGuinn had. And I think that he had a real affinity towards people and things that were outside of his own experience. So so it, he didn't like the Beatles. He didn't like the Rolling Stones. They were too nearby, too close, too kind of passe. So he liked the birds and Moby Grape and, and, and you know, Rocky Erickson. And, and I think he, you know, Mark uh, talking to Mark Ellen the other day, he was saying that Tom really had an affinity towards, towards slightly damaged, fragile people as well. And I think that that I don't know. I don't. I. I can't make any claim to know where that came from. But I think he kind of identified to a certain extent. He'd wanted. He. You know, for a long time, his ambition was to himself become a pop star, and that didn't really pan out. Um, but I think he kind of just recognised something in in these people who just looked at the world in a different way. Because I think he looked at the world in a different way as well. I was wondering about this the other day. You know, Metro was huge. The, the magazines were huge, and. A lot of people became very famous afterwards. Some people didn't. But I think the best people that were working on it all had that sense of being slightly other, not necessarily corporate. I mean, you've got to remember at the time, I don't think there was such a thing as marketing. I remember when they invented it. It was quite a strange day. I was on More Magazine and someone bought in some shampoo and said, stick it on the front cover. It's called marketing. And we went, go away. We're not doing that. (laughs) But, you know, within about 10 years, marketing had taken over editorial. And now, obviously, content's taken over everything. So I think it was the sense that we were editorial people were quite other. They were quite different. They were quite outsidery. And and Tom was like the icon of that. And I think there was a one bit in there where he's talking about looking at his heroes and finding them to be old and damaged and fragile and past it and how he felt about that. And then right at the end of the book, You've got Robin Hitchcock describing him in a similar way, which was actually almost too painful to read. I read it and then I put it down and then I picked it up and reread it. The book has a lot of powerful emotion in it like that because it's almost like Tom became one of his own heroes in, in the last few years of his life because of his illness. Um, I wouldn't say he faded away, but he obviously went through, you know, there's a great deal of tragedy with dying so young. Um I don't know. It's funny because he was different. But on the other hand, everybody wanted to be around him. So he was like he was never particularly alone. It's interesting. He was, yeah, I mean, it's hard to describe what he was like. I wish I had a video. I wish we took video. We didn't have phones. We didn't have anything. Well, let's hear from another one of Tom's colleagues from New Music News, Smash It's and Q Magazine. This is Mark Allen. Well, he was terribly funny, you know. His, I mean, in real life, he didn't like very much pop music at all. I lived with him for quite a long time in the uh, before we got married, and uh, he only liked he liked the Kinks, you know. He liked Iggy Pop, and he liked Julian Cope, and he liked um, Rocky Erickson, 
and about three or four other things. And that was about it. And the rest of the time, he just took the piss out of the group. So it was perfect for him being on Smash Hits because he didn't really like anything. All he was doing was looking for the way that he could send them all up and make them into cartoon characters. Uh, and I think he did that brilliantly. It was affectionate too, actually. I mean, it really was. It was completely affectionate. It didn't mean any harm. He just he's really good at sending people up, you know. And also very, very funny and just just inventing this kind of fantasy world. He used to do the trails for Smashes. As after I left, we didn't really overlap. I got him in there, but I'd go by there as well, QQ. And he would say, you know, next next issue would be um, the Flying Savaloy Brothers and Janet or the Human Source Bands of the Orinoco. So he just made up this kind of fantasy nonsense. But he's brilliant. He had a brilliant technique for interviewing people where he, he wouldn't really ask any questions. He would just sit there looking disapproving. And, and to fill the silence, people would just start just, you know, coming up with all sorts of ridiculous stuff because they, they, they were just embarrassed that, that they weren't being asked anything, really. So he got great confessions out of people. Neil Tennant told me that soon after he left Smash Hits and, you know, had, had a hit single, he was interviewed by, by Tommy for, um, for Smash Hits after West End Girls, I think. And he just thought, this is going to be such fun. You know, here I am, I've had a number one record, everything I've ever wanted in life I've achieved. And he sat down with Tom, and Tom just sat there with his tape recorder rolling and said, uh, so, Neil, so, number one. I mean, you know, what's next? You know, that kind of, you know, and kind of shrugging as if somehow his achievement was kind of, uh, was somehow rather mediocre. And he was kind of panicked by this and sort of, you know, went into this extraordinary interview where he, uh, you know, was just uh, talking about having doubts about it all. and Maybe he should be giving the money to charity or whatever. And I don't know. It's just, uh, it's, it's really, really interesting. But he was great, Tom. Really funny, really characterful. And he was a big part of it. let's talk favorite bits of the book highlights and things i've already mentioned what mine is slangsville uh the assorted definitions from rock speak the dictionary of rock terms gav what, what about you what did you particularly enjoy well i think the uh, the rocky erickson interview is is fascinating because uh obviously at that point rocky is uh not in the best of health should we say um mentally but it's a very sort of tender piece and, and rocky was a, a musical hero of, of tom's so uh, King Coffee from Butthole Surface is kind of looking after Rocky and uh, and Tom meets him. And and it's a very strange experience. And they end up in a in a goodwill store, like a charity shop. And Rocky's just like got childlike wonder at all these things he sees. And he keeps thinking everything's going to cost a million dollars. And and they're all like $10 or $5. And, and Tom ends up buying him um, like a sort of a, a piece of audio equipment that has sort of different inputs and microphones to go into and uh and he kind of says at the end oh it, you know it's it's sad and, and tom's sort of reflecting on it but then he says but then actually he's kind of using it and he's making music and it it's quite so it's quite a bit of sweet ending in the end um but it it's a love it's a lovely piece i think because there's, there's a lot of humor in it but it's, there's also a sadness and a tenderness there but a kind of a gentle ending to it as well and, and that really stuck in my mind because it seemed like because I, I think in one of the other pieces in the book as well, Tom mentions the time he bought something for Rocky Erickson in a charity shop, and uh, yeah, that was that was my favourite. But I mean, the, the whole book is is great. I, I kind of breezed through it. It was just a beautiful read, um, and it's it's lovely hearing all those different voices as well, and getting that like you know, as I said earlier, you get that kind of real three D um, picture 
of Tom that's built up through these different sort of strata and different reminiscences. Jasper, what about what about you? Uh, if you just had to choose one from this, what what sticks out to you? What do you remember the most? It's like asking choose choose a favorite child. Um, yeah. I don't know. I yeah. I mean, <laughs> I like I like a lot of the short columns. Um, I love the Bross piece that where he goes and talks talks to Bross because again, I mean, that's one of the sort of it's not a who the hell, but it almost feels like it is. And it, they kind of he doesn't even have to really do anything for them to be ridiculous. <laughs> Uh, he just sort of basically transcribes what they're doing. Um, I mean, uh, it's uh, there's too much. There's way way too many pieces to to choose from. I think the personal reminiscences are pretty pretty wonderful. Like just, I mean, the the, the very first one where he's talking about his his childhood um, and the Rocky Erickson, where he's talking about his heroes. I I, I yeah, you've, you've really. I mean, one of my favourite headlines is Supertramp colon Is this really the most fun you can have with a washing up glove? <laughs> Um, so yeah, I've just got lots of favourites. I like the whole section of Pendennis. I mean, any anything where he just gets a chance to work himself out and kind of just go on a go on a wonderful Tom tangent. I I just I love it all. I really do. I, I there's 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 so many facets to him. His humanity on the one hand, his humour on the other, and it all just comes together all the time. So I, I can't I can't choose. You've you've put me in an impossible position. <laughs> I do apologise, Caroline. What about you? Yeah. No, it is it is impossible to choose. But I like like you just said the the first uh, section where he's talking about his early life because I think it really does it it really gives you a picture of how he became the person that he became. Which none of, well I didn't know. I'm sure you know other people knew a bit about his background, but I didn't know about his school any of that stuff. But I found that things like Moby Great when he started talking about that. I find myself actually researching it and Googling them and listening to their records. And I think that's what's good about it. He makes you go away and explore his own fascination with things. You think, who was this Moby Great and what happened to them? And then, of course, he tells you what happened to them, which is even more tragic. And it's another example, as we said earlier, of how he championed people that fell apart before they even got started. Um, And I guess, you know, reading the Margaret Thatcher interview again was totally fascinating for so many reasons, because why on earth did she do it? We know she wanted to try and get young people to like her. Um, but he actually made her come across as a decent person, which he could have done the complete opposite. In no way did he ever make her come across as a terrible, evil witch. He, could, he didn't do any of that. He just let her speak. And the things that come across the most is, she says, don't be a spectator. You know, go out and work hard and do something with your life. Join a band. And she's sitting there saying that to Tom, which is, of course, what he wanted to do, join a band. Um, somehow he always seemed to, I don't know, there was a kind, like a kindness to the way he interviewed people as well. Um, I don't think there was any anything malicious in, in what he did. So it's just joyous finding out more about him. And I think this book does give you so much more about him. You learn so much more about how he felt, how he grew up and his life, really. It's brilliant. I love it. While we're talking about uh, Tom joining a band, Jasper, could you just quickly summarise uh, Tom's adventures in, in music, you know, what he did himself? He was a guitar player, wasn't he? Yeah, he was a guitar player. He was in the weeds with with some friends, I think, including a, and that they were like a they were on on some on some farm in Wales, rural Wales. The weeds were, and apparently, 
one day Mick Jagger showed up and wanted to hear them play and Tom sort of refused. I mean, Mick Jagger, there were, there were certain illicit activities going on on this farm aside from the Weeds rehearsals and Mick Jagger showed up for that reason uh, and, uh, you know, he wanted... <laughs> He, he asked to hear them play or after finding out there was a band on this farm and, and Tom was sort of fated for refusing to play for Mick Jagger. So that's <laughs> that's one one element. He was in a group called The Love Trousers with Mark <laughs> Ellen. Um, he produced this, one of these tracks for, for uh, on on a, um, a band called Tired of Living, question mark. Their single, uh, Kiss a Lot of Frogs, he was involved with them. Um, he did all sorts of things. He had a solo project called uh, Mondo Billy Davis or something. Yeah, Mondo Billy Davis. Uh, we'll, we'll take a little listen to uh, a clip from that and also um, kiss a lot of frogs. So uh, here's a little clip of uh, Tom Hibbert under the name Mondo Billy Davis and Howard Hughes' shoes. Musical stylings of Mr. Tom Hibbert there. And uh, there's one thing that we haven't touched on yet, and that is the cover of the book, uh, designed by none other than Caroline Grimshaw. Uh, George, tell us about it, Caroline. The famous cover. Well, I can tell you about the uh, evolution of the famous cover, yeah. Because I think after like 40 years of designing, that's the longest brief I've ever had. It lasted a year and four months to get it to the state that it's at. So, uh, And actually, I think that, kind of um, that goes with who Tom was. And one thing I learned from just doing this cover is that everybody has a different version in their head of who Tom is and everybody has a different version of what Smash Hits was and what it means to them in Q as well. And trying to produce something that works really well for everybody visually was very hard, in fact. And we spent, it may not look like it, but we spent a long time trying out many different varieties of covers and images, colour, black and white yearbook covers, uh, montages of Q magazine pages behind him, words, his own words behind him. Was he a collection of words or was he a cartoon character? All these different versions. And in the end, it seemed the best thing to do was to just go with Tom and a typical book because you can imagine him sitting there, because obviously he was in that picture, you can imagine him sitting there with his Barry Manilow book because, you know, he adored these strange characters. And the more you read in the book, the more you realise that wasn't an affectation. He was just really in love with the strange, and he championed all that, I think. I think it was also good that we ended up with Paul Ryder picture on the cover, because um, as you click through the book, these names recur, Paul Ryder's name recurs um, throughout the book. So he was another character that was around at the time on the magazines that we were working on. And I think that's great that we've actually got that, that picture there. Uh, it's a good use of the uh, old Smash It's font on the, uh, the front of the book as well. Uh, so any final thoughts uh, from you, Caroline? Um, I just wrote down one word. Um, I've written down this quote where he says, I love that endures, which I think is from his own words. Um, 
and I think he was talking about how he remains faithful to the broken and the things that just disintegrate in front of him. And I, as I said before, I think this book does feel like a bit of a, a love letter to a person that we all, the people that knew him, have remembered him, and the people that didn't know him, like the sound of him, um, like our lovely young person here. Um, you know, <laughs> you like the sound of him. You've you've spent a year of your life investigating him, and you know he's affected your life as well. So I think this kind of love that endures for Tom Hibbert is a great um, expression of what we feel for him and how we haven't really forgotten him. And it, there is a, I still feel a sense that he could just walk through the door now. He's a very present person. You know, he's not one of those sort of shadows that... There are a lot of shadows from the 80s, but he's one of those people that you can imagine staggering up the road. Um, and as I think somebody said, I can't remember who, just said the way he looked at you and suddenly his face would light up and his eyes would start sparkling and he'd get out a cigarette and light it and grin at you. And these, it, it, it was good to be there. It's, uh, it was a privilege to be there. I bet. Beautifully put. That's really lovely. Yeah. I think that, that comes up a lot uh, through people's reminiscences of the, the twinkly eyes. Like now when I think of Tom, having, having read the book, I, I just kind of imagine a big grin and twinkling eyes. It's kind of put that image in my head and... Uh, what what finer thing is there than something that makes you think that about you? I mean, you know, and I and I think also the fact that he he just clearly had such a huge impact on. It seems like anyone that he came across in life, people that worked with him and, and became friends, obviously will never forget him and just still treasure his memory to this day. And and like you say, Caroline, that he's still kind of a present in their life. That you know you don't think of him really in the past tense so much, but that he's, he's still kind of around. So. That was one of the really lovely things working on this book was that just how people basically jumped for joy at the opportunity to talk about Tom, write about Tom, think about Tom. It was just like so, and it's kind of almost, I mean, obviously the book hasn't come out yet at time of recording, so we'll see how it's received. But even just from the early early bits of, of promotion that's, that have been done about it, people seem excited and that's very exciting to have been part of it's been a real privilege to be part of it and i think it's just a testament to what a character he was so jasper uh the all important information we need to know please remind us yeah the book's called few a readers the life and writing of tom hibbert to give it its full title it's got a lovely blurb on it the funniest and most revealing of all music journalists said spoken by one neil tennant of the pet shop boys edited by barney hoskins and myself and published by 9-8 Books out on February 1st. Available from all good bookshops. Covered by Caroline Grimshaw. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, thank you both for joining us in the carousel reading room, I'm sure. All the giddy poppers out there. Uh, can't wait to get stuck into reading the book. Thanks to Ben and Pete at 9-8 for helping make this happen as well. Um, Gav and I will be back with a full-length feature episode oh, soon-ish. Uh, don't hold us to a date, but we will be. Uh, so we'll see you next time on the Giddy Carousel of Pop. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.